0: Throughout the month of September, we are unpacking our purpose statement. That purpose statement can be found on the front of your bulletin and on the screen behind me. First Baptist Church Pelham is a Christ-centered faith family that exists to make disciples for global impact. By enjoying God through worship and prayer, equipping disciples through teaching and serving, and by engaging the world through missions And evangelism. Embedded in that 40 word statement, you'll find our five word mission. We exist to make disciples for global impact. Last week, we began our conversation by looking seriously at the messianic mandate as given to us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that we are to simultaneously be witnesses on all four missionary fronts our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This morning, I want us to focus our conversation around what it means to enjoy God through worship and prayer. Specifically, what it looks like to enjoy God through prayer. It was Martin Luther, the 16th century Protestant reformer, who said, If I should neglect prayer, but for a single day, I would forfeit much of the fire of my faith. When you and I look through the book of Acts, we see that prayer peppers nearly every page. As air is to breathing, so prayer is to the believer. It is necessary for our spiritual nourishment. It is necessary for us as a faith family. When you look at the early church, you discover that they were praying all the time. In Acts chapter 1, we are told that they prayed constantly. In Acts chapter 1, verse 24, when it came time to replace Judas as the disciple, it says that then they prayed. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we are told that the believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In Acts chapter 6, when those first servants were raised up out of the church, it's the apostles that Prayed for them and laid hands on them. On nearly every page through the book of Acts, you'll find God's people getting together to pray. So this morning, I want us to take a little journey. I want us to travel back some 2,000 years. I want us to eavesdrop on one of the first prayer meetings in church history. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. I invite you to take your Bible and turn there. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. This morning, I want to speak to you a sermon that's simply entitled, Praying Down the Heavens. Praying Down the Heavens. Acts chapter 4, let's begin at verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Our story actually begins in the previous chapter. It's there that we're told that Peter and John were making their way to the temple about three o'clock in the afternoon for prayer. And as they were making their way into the temple complex, there they saw a crippled man who was brought to the gate called Beautiful to beg I'm assuming this is not the first time that crippled guy had been plopped there at the gate called beautiful. I think that's probably his routine. Some of his friends on a daily basis would bring him uh, to the temple complex in the hopes that he could eke out an existence by the generosity of religious people. And as people walk past, this man who is described as being crippled from his mother's womb, he asked the same question: alms for the poor? Any money for the poor? As Peter and John walked past, he asked them the very same question. And Peter locked eyes with this man. He said, look at me. And at that moment, the man thought he had just hit the jackpot. And he locked eyes with the apostle. And Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I'll freely give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And immediately, this man felt power surging in his legs, ankles, and feet. And for the first time ever in his life, he stood on his own two feet. He began to jump and to shout and to praise and to skip. He began to do all these things in the name and the power of the Lord Almighty. For the very first time, this crippled man was able to actually go to church, walk into the sanctuary, and there praise God's holy name. Now, he had never been to church before. Because of his blemished condition, he was not permitted into the holy sanctuary but now for the first day ever in his life he was able to go in and worship he didn't know how to act he didn't know what the proper protocol was he was jumping and shouting hooping and hollering this caused no small commotion in fact there were many people that thought to themselves hey isn't that the man who used to sit out at the gate called beautiful and beg and so they approached him they wondered what had happened The two disciples, they took advantage of the moment. They seized the opportunity. They began to clearly proclaim the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. You're asking how this man can now walk? I'll tell you. It's because of Jesus and him crucified. It's the power of the resurrected Christ. That's why this man can walk. Now that message caught the attention of the attending priests. It actually got the attention of the temple guards as well. They swiftly swooped in and they arrested Peter and John. The next day, Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin. That's the 70 member ruling council of Israel. That's the Jewish Supreme Court. They arranged themselves in a very intimidating fashion. These 70 elders would uh, be seated, elevated in black robes in a semicircle, and the defendant would always be standing sheepishly right there in front of all of them. This was an intimidating place, even for the most unflappable of defendants. But Dr. Luke does not describe Peter and John as intimidated. He describes them as inspired. They say, if you're asking us, if you're calling us to account today for why a crippled man can now walk, then hear this. It's because of the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. For the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The Jewish Supreme Court did not know exactly what to do. The Sanhedrin did not know how to respond. They did take note that these were unschooled, ordinary men. You and I would call them rednecks. These are just ordinary rednecks. But we realize that they have been with Jesus. Oh, my friend, I've got to tell you, it's amazing what happens when you hang out with the Holy One. It's amazing what happens when you talk with Jesus and walk with Jesus. Not only does it affect how you think, but it also affects what you can do. It affects how you speak, it affects how you move. It affects your priorities in life. It's amazing when you hang out with the Holy One, because the Jewish Supreme Court understood that these two redneck rebel rousers, they had been with Jesus. They asked for Peter and John to leave so they could convene. They had to come up with some verdict. So this was their conclusion. We will tell these guys to never again speak in the name of Jesus. That ought to do it. That'll pipe them down. So they called them back in and they said, this is our decision and it is stamped in stone. It's handed down from the Sanhedrin. You may no longer speak in the name of Jesus. Got it? And I think it's at that moment that Peter and John look at each other with a smirk on their face. I think it's Peter who responds and says, judge for yourselves whether it's right for us to obey God or obey you. You see, we've got a really bad case that can't help it. We just can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. If you had seen everything we had seen, if you'd heard everything we've heard, there's no way you could be quiet about it. In fact, if you knew Jesus the way we know Jesus, you would also have a bad case that can't help us. We just can't help but speak about what we've seen and about what we've heard. Well, they gave further threats of potential persecution. And all the while, Peter and John said, are we through here? Can we go? They kicked them out of the royal court. They made their way back to the place where the church had gathered. Peter and John told the faith family about everything that had happened. Told them about going to pray at the temple and bumping into the crippled man. And the man was able to stand on his own two feet and then being arrested and standing before the Sanhedrin. And as they told that story, the church erupted in praise. They they erupted in praise. In fact, it sparked a spontaneous prayer meeting. Much of the passage that I read for you consists of the prayer that the church prayed. The church did not respond in paranoia. They responded in praise. They were not described as being insecure. They were described as being inspired. And I think that as you look at this prayer I think the case could be made that the early church enjoyed God. (laughs) And when you enjoy God, it affects your worship. It affects your praise. When you enjoy God, it affects your prayer life. And this church just erupted in praise and prayer unto the Lord. This morning, I think there are several noteworthy observations for us to look at this prayer. And then we can import it into our life. The first is this, we must take note to whom they prayed. Now, you may call me Captain Obvious, and I get it, but we have to take note to whom they prayed. They addressed their prayer to Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord, You are the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Do you realize, church, that when you pray, you are gaining the audience with the creator of everything, seen and unseen, visible and invisible? When you pray, you are speaking to the one that spoke the world into existence. You are talking to the one that flung the stars into space, set the planets in orbit, and taught the sun how to shine. When you pray, you are speaking to the one who created everything. And even though the world is complex and the universe is uh, very detailed, there is no way that God got exhausted because you cannot exhaust the eternal one. And God did this without getting his hands dirty, without Without rolling up his sleeves, without even breaking a sweat, he simply spoke, and the world came into existence. When you pray, you are talking to this sovereign Lord. That's important. You got to know to whom you pray. We're not praying to a creation of our of our imagination. We're not praying to uh, uh, someone who's just uh, one step above a human. We're not praying to uh, someone who just is something that we have fathomed up in our minds. No, we are praying to the sovereign Lord. When you pray, you're gaining the audience with God. This God who is sovereign, always has been, always will be. Now to say that God is sovereign is to say that he's in charge of all things. To say that God's in charge of all things is to say that he ordains all things. God ordains everything that takes place. In fact, whatever he permits, he promotes for his good and for his glory. Our God is sovereign. He's in charge of, of everything. The Old Testament writers used to speak of it as the all causality of God. That if you trace everything back, that that God is the unmoved mover. He is the one that, that starts everything. He is involved intimately in everything. I want you to notice that this is exactly how the early church prayed. I want you to see it in verse 28. I want you to see it. I want you to hear it. I want you to read it. You can underline it if you want to because this is so fundamental and foundational to how we pray and to whom we pray. In verse 28, they are praying and the church says they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. What they're testifying to is that it was God's will for this man to be born crippled. It was God's will for this man who was about the age of 40. It was God's will for this crippled man around the age of 40 to be healed. It was God's will for Peter and John to go to the temple and to pray at three o'clock in the afternoon and bump into this man and speak the name of Jesus so that he would be healed and then for them to be arrested because of their actions. It was God's will for Peter and John to be persecuted of sorts, and and to be placed there in jail and then ultimately in front of the Sanhedrin. It was God's will for this to happen. Specifically, what the church is praying about is they're saying it was God's will for the Lord to send Jesus, for Jesus to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for the sins of the world, to be placed into a borrowed tomb, and then on the third day to be raised from the dead. This was God's will for this to happen. When you and I acknowledge that God is the sovereign Lord, we are saying not only is he in charge of all things, but he ordains all things. And whatever he permits, he promotes for his good and for his glory. Now, let me be very clear. To say that God ordains all things does not mean that God is the perpetrator of evil. God is not the perpetrator of evil nor does it diminish our human responsibility for we have some free choices that we make on a daily basis. But this reminds us that the God to whom we pray, he is sovereign. He's not learning as he goes. We are not open theists. We don't believe that God is somehow learning history and learning the future. No, God knows the future as certainly as he knows the past. God knows all things. At some level, he permits all things. Therefore, he can work through all things. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the kind of God I want to pray to. I want to pray to a God who can work in all things because nothing catches him off guard. Nothing shocks him. Nothing surprises him. This is why the Apostle Paul will write in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that our God works in all things to bring about his good, To those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That God works in all things. That's got to include the good things and the bad things. All things must include those things that are comfortable and catastrophic Those things that are pleasant and painful. Those things that are delightful and devastating. Our God works in all things. Why? Because he is sovereign. He is in control. And he ordains all things. The church said, Peter and John, what just happened to you was not by accident. God allowed that on purpose. Because he is in charge of everything. This idea It it permeates all throughout the scripture and especially in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter is speaking on the day of Pentecost. And he is referring to Jesus. And he says, this man was handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. This man was handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge And you, along with other wicked men, nailed him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. What you did did not surprise God. No, it was perfectly permissible in his will. In Acts chapter 17, once again, it's the the, uh, Apostle Paul who speaks in the synagogue at Thessalonica. And he says that this Christ had to suffer and die in this way. He had to suffer. The word had to is the word that means it is necessary. It must happen. It must happen in this way, in this time. Why? Because God had ordained it. And because God is sovereign, he has ordained all things. He can work through all things. If you remember again, Romans chapter eight, beginning at verse 22 and following in Romans eight, the apostle Paul speaks about how creation groans, how you groan, and even how the spirit groans. And even God can work through the groanings. We think about the spirit groaning. What that means is that the spirit of God is interceding for us with moans and groans that words cannot even interpret. That as you pray unto the Lord, that it's the Spirit of God who is moaning and groaning for you. That's a great picture, isn't it? And we also can fathom what it looks like for us as humans to groan. Because sometimes we pray and we just don't know what to say, don't we? And all we can say is a moan and a groan. And we hope that that God can interpret that because our, our language limits us. So we just moan and we groan. But Paul also says that creation groans. What does that look like? I can tell you what it looks like. It looks like Hurricane Harvey. It looks like Hurricane Irma. It looks like tornadoes that ripped through Pleasant Grove on April the 27th, 2011. That's what it looks like when creation groans. Because you do realize that sin has touched and tainted everything. Not just every person, but everything in all creation. And, and, and when there are natural catastrophes, it is creation groaning under God saying, How long, O oh Lord, until you recreate us? How long, O oh Lord, until you make all things right? Because even creation, has been touched and tainted by sin. Sin did not just touch and taint your mind and my mind, your heart, my heart, your life and my life. It touched and tainted every bird, every tree, every flower, every blade of grass, everything in the sea, everything in the atmosphere. Everything has been touched and transformed and tainted by sin. And even creation is groaning. I tell you that to tell you this, that our God works through all of it. And nothing catches him off guard. When you pray, you are praying to a sovereign Lord. You're not giving him any late breaking news. You're never informing him. Hey, God, did you hear about this one? Hey, God, did you know this? Did you know that? Yes. He knows all things. When the church erupts in prayer, they, they begin to talk to the sovereign Lord. Once again, I don't know about you, but that's who I want to speak to. I want to address the sovereign Lord. He has everything under control. He knows all things. And whatever he permits, he promotes for his good and for his glory. There's a second observation. Not only must we acknowledge to whom they prayed, but we've got to know how they prayed. It was James Boyce who said, prayer is how we speak to God. The scripture is how God speaks to us. But in this prayer meeting of Acts chapter 4, the church spoke to God using God's language. That's what James Boyce said. That that the church spoke to God using God's language. They prayed the scripture. You get to begin verse 25, and and they begin to quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot against the Lord? This, this idea that, that God's people pray God's word is consistent all throughout the Bible. In fact, it's a pretty good way to pray. That when you pray, just pray the scripture. When you pray, pray and speak back to God using God's own language. This is what Jonah did. When Jonah is there in the smelly belly of the fish, it has been said that, that he was holding on to scraps of scripture. If you look at the prayer that Jonah prayed, he prays like parts of 30 passages of scripture never completing all the passage, but just reaching for this one and reaching for that one. And I don't know about you, but, but when I find myself in a tough spot, when I find myself in the smelly belly of a fish, proverbially speaking, when I find myself like, I find myself just scrapping, grabbing for scraps of scripture, right? I mean, we're just trying to find anything that we can have. Oh, I know the Lord said something like this. And I know the Lord said something like that. And I know the Lord said something like this. And we piece it all together. That's how Jonah prayed as he's spiraling down into the pit of the sea. He prayed scraps of scripture. That's how Asaph prayed. When Asaph was between a rock and a hard place, when he was at that place about ready to throw in the towel, what he did is that he prayed the mighty deeds of God as recorded in scripture. Because somehow he said, This is very therapeutic for me that if I remember how God acted in the past, then that's a good predictor of how God's going to act in my present and my future. So he began to pray the recorded deeds of God. Even Jesus prayed the scripture. He's hanging on the cross and he quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All throughout the Bible, we find examples of individuals that are praying the scripture here in Acts chapter four. The church prays and you think to yourself, what in the world does Psalm two have to do with what Peter and John had gone through? What's the correlation between Psalm 2 and what's what's going on in their life? It doesn't seem to make sense. You read it, you think, wow, they just didn't know what else to say. I mean, so they were just reaching for anything. Psalm 2 is an enthronement psalm. Psalm 2 um, is a psalm where the question is asked, why do the nations rage? Why, Why do the peoples plot why do kings and rulers come against the Lord's anointed one? In Psalm 2 verse four, it says that the Lord laughs and scoffs at the advancement of the wicked. Just visualize that. That the wicked are trying to advance against God's church. The wicked are trying to advance against God's people. The wicked are trying to thwart the will of God. And what is God doing? (laughs) He's laughing. He's scoffing at them. Hey, do you see what they're trying to do? Hey, that's pretty funny. Is he stressed? No. Is he sweating? No. Is he nervous? No. Why? Because he's sovereign God. Because he is the Lord of the cosmos. And he laughs and scoffs at the advances of the wicked. And then in verse 6 of Psalm 2, the Lord speaks and says, I have set the anointed one in Zion. I have established his kingdom. I have established his throne. I have set the anointed one in Zion. What is Zion? Zion is Jerusalem. The early church had a paradigm shift after Calvary. You say, what's a paradigm shift? A paradigm shift is when you see the same things in new light. That's a paradigm shift. And the early church after Calvary saw everything through the lens of Jesus. It's not that they were reading into the Old Testament scripture. They were just seeing it more clearly because it's always been there. It's always been there that all of scripture is about Jesus. He is the author of scripture. He is the subject of scripture. He is what scripture is all about. And it is through the lens of Calvary that you and I can see this. So the church is praying Psalm 2 because they're saying, hey, God has already established the anointed one in Zion. He did that in the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, wasn't he? And Jesus was raised from the dead in Jerusalem. And Jesus ascended into the heavens from Jerusalem. And Jesus promised that he's going to return. And where's he going to go? To Jerusalem. In fact, many believe that Jesus will come right through that eastern gate around the holy city. Now, I've been told um, that somewhere in human history, that eastern gate's been walled up. Friends, I've got a newsflash. If a large stone could not keep Jesus in the grave the first time, a few more stones aren't going to keep him out of Jerusalem the second time. God has established the anointed one in Zion. He has set the king of all kings. He's established his kingdom both now and forevermore. He has done it. They pray Psalm 2 because they know of the centrality of Jesus. They know the supremacy of Jesus. They know that everything's happening to to them. is because of Jesus. And so they understand that they are praying the scripture. They are speaking to God in God's language. When you pray, How often do you pray scripture? How often do you just lift up God's word unto him? Here, the early church not only knew to whom they prayed, the sovereign Lord, they also knew how to pray, for they prayed the scripture. But there's a third observation. The third observation is this. They knew what to pray. Beginning of verse 29 and following, the early church prays, Lord, please remember the threats that are coming against your servants and help us to speak your word with boldness. That's what they prayed for. Give us boldness. It's William Willimon who said, if I had had a brush with the authorities, like Peter and John, I think I would have prayed for divine protection instead of divine boldness. Lord, please help me. Lord, please keep me out of harm. Lord, please help me not to get thrown back into jail. Help me not to have to stand in front of the Sanhedrin again. Hey guys, I think that we ought to just kind of go along to get along. I think that we may just need to acquiesce just a bit. I think we may need to be a little bit more compliant. After all, we need to be good citizens of this uh, Roman empire. So guys, let's just kind of pipe down just a bit. I'm not saying we need to be completely muted and silent, but let's just pipe down just a bit. Let's just be a little bit more quiet because we don't want to get into more trouble because uh the way rate we're going all of us are going to get thrown into jail or get executed before this whole ball gets to be rolling again so let's just kind of pipe down god just give us some divine protection peter john the early church they didn't pray for that what did they pray for lord will you please give us some more 40 year old crippled guys Lord, will you please give us some more opportunities to stand and proclaim the gospel in the temple? Oh, Lord, will you please give us some more chances to get arrested? Lord, will you please help us to have more opportunities to stand before the Sanhedrin and proclaim your gospel? Will you please uh, give us more harm, not help? Will you please uh, just give us more boldness and not protection? I find it interesting. The early church did not pray, Lord, save our skin. They prayed, Lord, save our city. They did not ask for God's blessing. They asked for God's boldness. They did not ask God for pleasure. They actually asked for persecution. They did not ask for comfort. They asked for courage. They did not pray, oh God, give us your mercy. They said, oh God, give us your might. Because the word boldness means frankness, openness of speech, plainness of speech. Oh God, Help our mouths not to be silent. Give us boldness. My friends, is that how you pray? Is that what you pray for? Lord, give me more persecution. No, we pray, Lord, give me more protection. What do you pray for? Lord, give me boldness. Oh, no, no, no. Give me more blessings. That's what I want. Oh, God, give me more courage. No, no. We say, God, will you please give me more comfort? Just work out the situation. Just help me out. Just shine upon me. Just give me a more palatable life. I don't want any persecution in my life. That's not how the early church prayed. They said, God, give us more boldness. Give us more harm. Give us more persecution. Because in that, we know you're going to give us opportunities to make much of Jesus. So how do you pray? Do you pray for boldness or blessing? Do you pray for might or mercy? How do you pray? The early church said, God, more than anything else, we need your boldness. Because fundamentally, the greatest form of persecution is to mute the church. That's the greatest form of persecution to silence the saints. So the early church said, do not let me be silent. Some of us aid in persecution just because we are silent, because we're muted about the Messiah. This idea of boldness, it permeates not only Acts 4, but all of Acts. I'll give you one example. The very last line of the very last chapter of the book of Acts, we find the apostle Paul He's under house arrest in Rome, and we read that Paul is proclaiming the gospel boldly and unhindered. That's the last phrase. In the ancient text, it is boldly and unhindered. The image is this is how the gospel is being proclaimed, boldly and unhindered. Do you want to take a guess? What the root word is for boldly, it's the same root word that you have in Acts 4 about boldness. Give us boldness. That's exactly what you find in the Apostle Paul as he proclaims the gospel boldly and unhindered. There's an irony there because he is in chains, yet he is unhindered. So Luke, the author, says the gospel's going forth, it cannot be stopped. You're part of something that's an unstoppable force. You are part of something called the church that cannot be thwarted. The will of God, the gospel of God cannot be stopped. So the early church said, this is how we pray. God, please let us pray the scripture. And this is what we pray. God, please give us boldness. When they said in Jesus' name, amen, you know what happened? The whole place was stirred. The whole place was shaken. They didn't just say, in Jesus' name, amen, Uh, have a good day. I hope you have a a good lunch. I'll see you next time. No. They prayed, and the whole place was shaken. They were stirred, not just in spirit, but in structure. The whole place was moved. It was obvious that God had shown up and showed off, that God was doing something only God could do, only sovereign Lord can do. And the author says that they were filled with the Spirit. I told you last week there are 14 references in the Book of Acts where it speaks of being filled with the Spirit. And every time you find someone filled with the Spirit, the end result is that they talk about Jesus. What happens in Acts 4? The place is stirred. They are filled with the Spirit, and what do they do? They speak boldly about Christ. My friends, is this is this how you pray? Is this what happens when you pray? I mean, when you pray, does your house shake? When we pray, are the rafters raised? When we pray, does this describe your prayer life? Because if it does, will you please give me a call? I just want to eavesdrop on some of that prayer action. I mean, I just want to kind of be there, right? Because I must be confessional. I don't know that this characterizes my prayer life all the time so let me ask you do you pray for boldness or do you pray for blessings it's not wrong to ask for a blessing but if all you do is ask for blessings to the neglect of boldness there's probably a problem there do you ask for courage or do you ask for convenience do you ask for God's mercy or do you ask for God's might You and I look at enjoying God through worship and prayer. I see this picture of Acts 4. The church knew to whom they prayed. They prayed to the sovereign Lord. They knew how to pray. They actually prayed the scripture. They quoted Psalm 2. They saw everything through the lens of Calvary. And they knew what to pray for. They asked God for boldness. And how did God respond? He gave it to him. Isn't that great? He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to do anything for us or to us, does he? He doesn't owe us a thing, does he? We can't manipulate the Messiah. We can't stiff arm the Savior. We can't make him do anything. We can't say, God, you've got to show up today. No, all we can do is ask God, please show up and show off. And there are times when he does. Lord, please give us boldness. And there are times. When he does. Oh God, please heal and do a miracle that we can't explain. And there are times when he does. Oh God, please, I need you to fix up that which I've messed up. And there are times when he does. He doesn't owe us, but sometimes he just does it because he's God. This is how the church prays. So, church, this morning, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Please, Lord, stir your church. We're asking for you to stir our hearts and to stir the structure. We're asking for you to move in a mighty way. You don't owe it to us. You don't have to. God, we pray that we'll be a hungry people. We pray that we will always acknowledge to whom we pray. That We will lift up your scripture unto yourself. And, oh, Lord, that we will ask for things that give glory and honor to you. There's somebody here who needs to pray. Maybe they need to pray for salvation. There's somebody here who needs to pray for a broken relationship. There's somebody here who needs to pray to mend a marriage. There's somebody here that needs to pray for a prodigal son. There's somebody here who needs to pray for boldness and evangelism. Oh, God, as we sing, help us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.